The passage will be Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's been, it's been quite some time since I stood here, at least for this purpose, and looked out at all of you, actually two years almost to the day. Um, and what a two years it's been. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> um, but one wonderful part of those two years is there are a bunch of faces here that were not here two years ago, and they're wonderful faces, so very thankful for that. There's something, at least, that isn't just negative and difficult about what's come with these couple of years. Um, so for some time now, actually, some months now, I've been drawn to Colossians, and especially to verse 6 of chapter 2, and actually particularly during the recent series that Seth's done on growing in grace. Uh, early on during that series, um, this passage kind of jumped out at me in, in ways that hopefully will become clear as we, as we look at it further this morning. Um, our so our unpacking of this passage's implications will, as you might expect, cover three points. Um, the first is, what is it to receive Christ Jesus our Lord? What are the implications of what is being said to us there? Secondly, what is it to walk in him? And finally, what can we take by having these two essential realities brought together in the way they are here? What does it mean that we are to walk in Christ as we have received him? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we do come before you. Um, we place ourselves under your word. This is your word. And I pray that you would enable a right handling of it this morning. And ask that you grant us minds to understand and hearts to be moved by the things that you will show us in this part of your word. And may we leave this morning with something more than that with which we have come and with gratitude for what you provide for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I, I'd like to start in our consideration of this passage, um, looking again at actually the first phrase of verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And first, I think it's clear that we should see and recognize from the context of this letter 
that Paul is placing very important emphasis on what the Colossians had received. They had rightly received the true and faithful gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul opens the letter by, say, by thanking God for what he has heard of the faith of this body of believers in the hope laid up for them in heaven, which they had heard in the word of truth, the gospel which had come to them, and that it was bearing fruit and growing among them since the day they had heard it and un understood the grace of God in truth. Paul was concerned, clearly, that this right understanding and grasp of the gospel would not become twisted and distorted by influences of false teachings that had arisen, which emphasized, as we read a bit later, vain philosophies and human traditions, legalistic rituals, an improper form of mysticism, and extremes of asceticism. Paul says in verse 23 of chapter 2 that these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but that they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And it seems to me, as I, as I reflect on that, that if we think about it, there might just be some application of that concern regarding things like vain philosophies and human traditions for us today. Just maybe. As worldly perspectives and ideas and solutions are brought into the church to shape our convictions and our actions and our understandings regarding legitimately important issues such as race relations, sexuality, justice in society and among people, care of creation, many other things. I would say that we in our day are absolutely facing the same types of challenges for discernment that the Colossian church was facing, maybe even more acutely and aggressively than ever. The Colossian church had begun well. They had received the truths of God and his gospel rightly, and Paul is urging them to hold fast, to continue in the truths as they had first received them, just as they were taught, as he says in verse 7, and to be alert to these intrusions and deviations and to resist and reject them, to hold course in what they had received. And may we receive these same urgings from Paul for our day. But the church in Colossae had not only received a what, they had received a who. They had not only received the true and faithful teaching about the gospel and the things of God, but they had, as Paul puts it here, 
received Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ himself, by the Spirit, had come to the church, to this body of believers, and by the power of his sacrifice and through his resurrection, they had received him. And they had received him in a particular way, to a particular position, and that position was Lord. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. And as Lord, he was the one acknowledged as having charge over all things, as having all authority, as being the rightful object of their obedience and their loyalty, as the one to follow faithfully, as the one alone to worship, as the one in whose care they would put their trust. These believers had been established not only in right teachings about the gospel and about Christ, but, in, but relationally, in a lordship relationship with him. And how had all of this happened? Were the realities of these truths and teachings and this saving lordship relationship generated or produced by the Colossians? Were they discovered or accomplished or achieved by the Colossians? Certainly not. Paul might even say something like, by no means, or may it never be. No, they were received by them. They received Christ Jesus the Lord. These things had been delivered to them and they had simply received them. So what is it then to receive Christ Jesus the Lord? I have to admit I've always squirmed a bit when I've heard conversion talked about simply as a receiving Jesus. Not, not that people necessarily mean it this way, but as I hear it, it can almost seem to elevate us or elevate me in the receiving. As I sort of envision palace courtiers saying to a waiting throne room vis visitor, the king will receive you now. <clears throat> As if I am, I am exercising royal condescension in permitting Jesus' entrance. I do think we can be quite assured that that is not Paul's meaning here. Again, may it never be. In fact, just a few paragraphs earlier, he had just spent time proclaiming Christ as preeminent, declaring in chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is before all things, and that it's only in him that all things hold together, that he is the church's head, and that in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. We can also look at Paul's letter to the Romans and see how over and over when he refers to Christ, he refers to him as Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
affirming that it is he who sovereignly rules and it is we who are under him. And on and on we could go making that case from the scriptures. So no, we should obviously get no sense from Paul's use of this word received of a position of privilege or right for us in the receiving. Or even of the kind of quote-unquote asking Jesus into your heart that I think has too often left people with an impression of kind of a continued ownership of their hearts and lives with Jesus having been allowed entrance and a seat since he was good enough to knock. No, he who is to be received is the king. The king himself. And he or she who is doing the, re the receiving is merely a creature of this creator, small and weak and mortal. And more than that, an enemy and a rebel up until the receiving, as Romans 5 makes so clear. So then what is it for us to receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Somehow in a way that should astound us, that it seems to me should be more incomprehensible than we tend to think of it being, this king, in obedience to the Father, offers himself for us. That which is in Christ, which Philippians 3.9 calls the righteousness of God, becomes ours through no, no work, no merit of our own, but as a free gift to be received. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, we live now by faith in the, in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And how, how can this be? <laughs> the king of, this is the king of kings who has conquered, who is seated on high, to whom every knee will ultimately bow, and yet at the same time offering himself for us and to us freely? But yes, the scriptures do make this abundantly clear to us. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal Lord Christ, in becoming a man and submitting himself as sacrifice, has offered himself as our new Adam, as is also spelled out for us so well in Romans 5. So, though Christ can rightly be seen as the source of countless gifts, he most importantly has offered himself for us. The gift that brings the only true life and the gift without which all other gifts would ultimately not matter much. 
And this, this was the will of the Father. As we're all so familiar with, for God so loved the world. <laughs> the sinful, rebellious, sin-soaked, God-forsaking world that he gave his only son. So we can echo Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So we receive Christ. We receive him as a gift because Christ comes to us by way of his willing sacrifice having been given by his Father for our redemption. And to think about that further, what, what is it to be the receiver of any gift? By definition, when we receive a gift, we are again not receiving something we've earned or that is due to us. Otherwise, it would not be a gift. Romans 4.4 tells us, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. There is no work or merit that earns a gift, or again, it is not a gift. A gift also earns the receiver no credit. There is no praise or honor to be given to one for receiving a gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says that our salvation in Christ is not our own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we receive gifts, and we receive this amazing gift undeservingly, and we are not made deserving of any credit or honor in the receiving. And thus it is that if we have Christ, we have him only because we have, rede we have received our redeeming king's sacrifice and the hope that springs from this inexpressible gift. Recognizing our inability to have him in any other way. Turning from all other things and taking hold of Christ as he comes, putting the fullness of our trust in him, that is how Christ Jesus is to be received. So this verse talked of the Colossians having received Christ Jesus the Lord. And the same applies now to each of us who are believers. But it also called them, and now calls us, to be clear about something else. We need to understand what it is to walk in Christ. Because we are being called, even commanded here, to do so. And because we are being commanded, because we are being urged and called to this, 
we need to understand that it is not a given that everyone who has received Christ Jesus the Lord is always walking in him. Because, does Paul go on to say in Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, I rejoice that you are now seeking the things that are above. No. <laughs> he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Do this. Or does he say in the next verse, your minds are now set on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. No. He says, set your minds on things that are above. Those of you whose life is, is, not one day will be, but is hidden with Christ in God. Do this. Or again a little later in verses 5 through 8, does he say, What is earthly in you has now been put to death. In these things you too once walked well, when you were living in them, but now all of these things have been put away. Again, no. He says to the believer, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Do this. I could go on that way. But you get the idea. But on Paul does go, actually, through the rest of the letter. Exhortation after exhortation, call after call, because they need to be expressed and we need to hear them. Do not lie to one another. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, so forth. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious. Even as those who have received Christ, the scriptures clearly see us as needing these commands and these urgings to walk in the Christ whom we have received. Paul does much the same in his letter to the Ephesians, urging believers in the first verse of chapter 4 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, followed by many more specific calls to action that would befit that calling. And similarly, I am reminded of something Seth uh, emphasized a couple of weeks ago from Hebrews 10 in uh, verses 19 to 25, where the author says, Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, meaning essentially, since we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider one another and stir one another up to love and good works. Let us do these things. So we are called to do things and to live out things once we have received Christ. And are, are we not all painfully aware that we do not always and automatically do them? That we have to strive and fight to do them or we often don't do them. And I believe the scriptures tell us that this is partly, if not mainly, for reasons that go back to where we were last time I stood before you this way, almost exactly two years ago, as, as COVID was literally poised <laughs> to descend upon the world and upon us with everything it has brought. We looked then for a couple of weeks at the reality of our battle with the flesh. The old man that vexingly remains with us for now, even though its power to truly enslave or truly control us has been defeated by the power and sacrifice of Christ. We looked at Paul's descriptions in Romans 7 of his own clearly exasperating experience with this battle, seeing himself at times not doing the things that he wanted to do, but doing things that he says he hated, not doing the good that he desired to do, but at times doing, as he puts it, evil that he ultimately did not want to do. And we saw him acknowledging a sin that dwelt within, that he himself called the no longer I, the flesh, I believe, that waged war against his right desires and against his delight in God's law. And we looked how, at how we too contend with our own versions of this battle. Old Lauren, old Seth, old Grant, old each and every one of you who has been bought by Christ and has his new life within you. And because our, during our earthly lives we are so embattled, it is not a given that we will always be walking in what we have received. And we must, recall, we must respond to these calls and these urgings 
with choices and efforts day by day and moment by moment. But we also looked two years ago at the things Paul wrote following Romans 7, commonly known to us as Romans 8, and all of the help and encouragement to be found there for this unavoidable and essential battle. Things including the declaration that there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul would be speaking of himself in that, even after what he just had said. And even though we see in ourselves failings very much like what Paul was describing in himself. Things also like the assurance of our settled position now as adopted sons and daughters of God. And the gift of the indwelling spirit and his help and his power and his intercession. And the faithful intercession of Christ on our behalf. And the assurance that we are or first, the impossibility of our being separated from the love of God in Christ. And the assurance that we are, are, even now as we battle, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Could there be, I submit to you, a richer collection of encouragements for us as we strive and as we battle. But let's go back to Colossians 2.6. Isn't it also significant that Paul's call to us here is stated the way that it is? In every major translation, the call here is to walk in Christ. Not merely to walk with Christ or to follow after Christ, though the scriptures would certainly support those images too. But in this case here, Paul is calling us to walk in Christ, which in some sense seems to take it further or deeper than just with or after. And we can't help but, I think, think of Jesus' own call in John 15 for us to abide in him. He actually tells us clearly that if we are to be fruitful, which I believe is an essential part of what's being talked about in walking here, we must abide in him. And that outside of that, we can do nothing. And walking is doing. Doing the things of obedience and of Christ-likeness. Resisting the ways of the world and of the flesh. This verse calls us to not just a walking with or a following after, but an abiding walk in Christ. And that's a position we 
cannot ourselves ultimately attain or achieve, but only as the Spirit places us in Christ. But it is something that we should seek and cry out for as we fight against our fleshly inclinations to abide in so many other things and trusting that he is eager to respond and to make himself our abode in which we can not only take shelter, but walk. So finally, what might we rightly take from the phrasing of this verse, from from verse 6, and the way that these two crucial concepts are brought together, the affirmation of a receiving and the call, the exhortation to likewise walk. As you have received, it says, so walk. And I am again so aware that these strong urgings and commands to walk, act, live, behave in specific ways that we often find very difficult can be kind of overwhelming and discouraging. Partly because, I believe, we are so bent toward legalism, toward the idea that we can and therefore must do the right things and be the right things as a work of our own to make ourselves right, to make ourselves worthy, to make ourselves acceptable to God. It's telling as others have certainly noted, that every religion, every system ever devised by humanity apart from the gospel ultimately centers one way or another on people's own efforts to be virtuous, to live rightly, to actualize themselves, and so forth, But one other thing that I'm very aware of is that some of us, more than others, can be vulnerable and fall prey to this. Anxiety, for example. Something that is familiar to many of us pushes this idea hard. It places it, if we allow it, it places it on us to make ourselves right. I've often referred to anxiety as basically a card-carrying legalist because it always operates that way. And that's just one example of what can make us more vulnerable to this kind of perspective or thinking. And so I want to be mindful of that and not to be discouraging. 
Because if we understand all of these urgings and commands in that way, we will, and we do, quickly become discouraged and defeated. Because that is not the gospel, the true gospel work of Christ was, of course, done because of our complete inability to do all of what needs to be done. But some of what I see in this passage, I believe, offers us some help with that. Even as we are rightly given the call and the command that we would actually walk in Christ, living out and obeying these right teachings, what else does this verse have for us? And I believe we need again to pay attention to the significance of the word received. Paul could have simply said here, now that you have Christ Jesus, walk in him. But instead, we have a reminder that Christ Jesus the Lord has been received, given to and for us. And so, or likewise, walk in him. We've considered some of the most important aspects of the way in which we've received Christ, and that being, as a free gift, unearned, undeserved, with no merit of our own gained in the receiving. There's a word for that. And it is a precious, wonderful, glorious word. It is a life-giving, life-preserving word. That word is grace. It is by grace alone that we have received the gift of Christ, the truth of Christ, new life in Christ. And if we are to walk in him in the way in which we have come to have him, then that walk must also be done through grace. And that's, that's what especially took hold of me as I was looking at this passage during the series on Growing in Grace. But doesn't, doesn't this idea somehow challenge our way of our natural way of thinking. It, it, it really does for me, at least. It somehow seems to me so much easier to grasp that our receiving of Christ is totally and completely by grace. But don't we struggle more to grasp how our efforts for a life of obedience after that our striving and our battling and our resisting temptation, all of our works can be rooted in, empowered by, dependent upon the Lord's grace. 
it seems like any consideration of effort and striving on our parts unavoidably moves us out of the realm of grace, places us back in the realm of earning and achieving, of being judged by our performance and our results. But if we re-enter that realm, we are no longer abiding and walking in him. And we may as well have joined the rest of the world again and all of its religions in man-centered legalism, desperately or proudly striving to make ourselves worthy. But we really need to be clear that we would enter that realm only at our ultimate peril because the very best of our own righteousness, we're told in Isaiah 64, has already been judged and is found, has been found to be no better than filthy rags. So a striving to walk in righteousness or obedience that is separated from blood-bought grace is utterly doomed to futility. No matter how earnest and valiant that striving may be. It's so important that we get this, that keep hold of this, so that we understand our striving and our walking, because we are called to that, but that we understand it the right way. As believers, we both rest in Christ's saving work, and we must rest in that. And we respond to the call to strive and to walk and fight and work and do. The word is filled with many do's and don'ts. And they are all there not only for God's glory, but for our good. But, and here is the key, I believe, we absolutely must recognize that we strive as a fruit of being already bought and sealed and adopted and accepted as those who are by grace already set free so that we can strive with hope and with fruitfulness. Hebrews 10.14 tells us that by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time, has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified, the walkers. And it is by that grace that we strive alone. And not, it is by that grace that we strive not alone or in our own strength. In fact, we can see this 
just a few verses earlier in Colossians 1.29, where Paul makes a very striking statement about his own ministry strivings. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, meaning Christ's energy, that he powerfully works within me. So along with Paul, even though it is our striving, Paul said he toiled and struggled. By grace it is with Christ's energy working within us in the security of his unbreakable grip upon us in glad dependence upon him for every step and struggle. In the same way, just before Paul urged the Ephesian believers, as I mentioned earlier, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, he prayed in 3.16 that they would be strengthened with power through God's spirit in their inner beings. That is how the worthy walk was to be accomplished. And Peter as well. In 2 Peter 1.3, talks of Christ's divine power granting to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Walking. So, brothers and sisters, who have received the truths of God and of the gospel and have received and entered into a lordship relationship with Jesus Christ, let us strive, let us walk in Christ as Colossians 2.6 calls us to, but also let us gratefully acknowledge and proclaim to one another that the freedom and the means and the power for our obedient walking in Christ, just as in our original receiving of him, is a grace provided to us and an inexpressible gift to us. And that as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in us, which also began a good walk by us, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is a wonder that we are able to receive your Son that we are able to come under his lordship as not only judge, but redeemer, king, and shepherd. And we certainly do see our failings and our inconsistencies in our walk in him. And because of that, because of that, we are grateful that by your grace, you provide for our needs in this battle, that you never leave us to ourselves in it, 
and that you have promised to faithfully see us through. Oh, Lord God, we hope in you. We pray this in the name of the Son whom we have received and whose Lordship we celebrate. Amen. Let me close us <clears throat> fittingly, I think, with Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as we seek to walk in obedience and faithfulness, let us always take courage, knowing that the very God who calls us to that obedient walk works in us to see that it is accomplished. <clears throat>